Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. Today's Thursday, May 19th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor at Politico. Here's where we are. Bernie Sanders supporters are aggravated. The Democratic crack-up is threatening to really hurt Hillary Clinton as she's trying to focus on Donald Trump. Facebook has an optics problem with conservative voters in America who are accusing the social network of favoring liberal causes, not conservative ones. And there is an emerging gender gap between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, so large, in fact, that it will be driving campaign tactics and overall strategy for the next six months. Sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy our podcast. Here I am with some of my favorite people again. This time, we've got Hadass Gold sitting in for Eli Stokels. Hello. Got Ken Vogel. Hey. And our senior politics editor, Charlie Matessian. Hi, Kristen. We're going to do something different this week. We're going to actually start talking about Bernie Sanders instead of Donald Trump first. Bernie Sanders has had one heck of a week coming out of Nevada, where his supporters are really quite angry about the uh, state of the race, about um, how the Democratic Party establishment has already anointed Hillary Clinton, about the fact that he has an enormous vote tally and is already essentially mathematically eliminated from being the nominee. The Democratic establishment has responded to that by frankly rallying around Hillary Clinton and and sort of wagging their finger at Bernie Sanders and saying, get your people in line. And this this is an outrage that they would think to boo Hillary Clinton supporters gathered uh, to talk to other fellow Democrats in Nevada. So Charlie, tell us a little bit about this Democratic crack up and what it means for the race. Well, I I think what's important to keep in mind uh, is the point you made, that Bernie Sanders is not operating from a position of weakness. Yes, he's not going to win the nomination, and uh, yes, he faces a huge delegate deficit, but he is in the strongest position, uh, I I think, arguably, and probably has more bargaining power than any runner-up in, pri- in Democratic primary, in recent Democratic primary history. He's somebody who could end up winning more than half of the states by the end of the primary. He will have won millions of votes. He will have won more than 40 percent. It's not quite clear how high it will be, but more than 40 percent of the vote in the primaries. So he's not somebody who is coming to the table with nothing. Um, and I think that there's a tremendous amount of frustration in, in his camp and among his supporters that he's not getting the appropriate amount of respect for that. And, you know, I would argue that he's got a pretty good case there. But what's interesting here is I don't think their argument is so much with the Clinton campaign, uh, but the argument is with the Democratic Party apparatus, whether you're talking about it at the state level or at the national level. And I think that's really what this rift is about right now. I mean, it really hasn't surrounded Hillary Clinton's campaign or what they're doing. It is around... Uh, the periphery of it. It's how the Nevada chair ran her convention. It is how the debates went down and what role Debbie Wasserman Schultz played in it. It's how the representation on the standing committees at the convention have been allocated by the DNC. 
it's those sorts of things that are driving uh, this rift right now. Yeah, that's a great point, Charlie. And uh, it really gets at the distinction between this race and the 2008 Democratic primary, when people were so concerned that the party would not be able to come together. During that primary, the 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 dissent and the real nastiness extended all the way up to the candidates themselves, the candidates in their campaigns. And it started a lot earlier than this, and it stayed nasty all the way through. I remember specifically an event in uh, Ohio, in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the run-up to the Ohio primary in 2008, February of 2008. I remember it because I slept, I overslept, and I missed the Secret Service sweep, and so I had to drive <laughs> to this event to uh, get in and get through the perimeter, and it was kind of a pain in the butt. But I got there just in time after the event. Hillary Clinton held a press conference with Ted Strickland, governor of Ohio, by her side, and uh, went after Barack Obama for some campaign mailers that his campaign had been uh, distributing in the state. And he said, she said famously, shame on you, Barack Obama, wagging her finger. That was in February. February. And that tone persisted almost all the way through June, even as Hillary Clinton was, as Bernie Sanders now is, mathematically eliminated. And so it was, I think, much nastier. And nonetheless, they ended up coming together. So I do think that there is, uh, is a, more than a glimmer of hope for Democrats, even as things appear to be hopelessly divided between Sanders supporters and Clintons right now, that they will be able to forge a path forward together and get that unity. You know, I just wonder who cares, right? I mean, it's... Where are we? Are we in May? We're in May, right? Okay, so we are just a couple weeks away from the California primary. And a few weeks after that, we're going to be at the July convention. And then Bernie Sanders will be no more. So are we talking about this because we're desperate for something to talk about? No. Because we're political? Or does it matter? I think it matters. And I, I would disagree that the that the vitriol between the two parties on the Democratic side um, was maybe worse in 2008 because I would say that the Sanders supporters now are much different than what the uh, Obama or Clinton supporters were like in 2008. Wouldn't you argue that a lot of Sanders supporters don't necessarily identify even with the Democratic Party, which was part of the issue in Nevada, wasn't it, that so many of them hadn't even read the, the unseated delegates hadn't registered as Democrats properly in time, so they weren't like longstanding members of the party. And yes, Obama, I think, brought in... Um, a lot of new voters, but I think that the same thing that you see with Trump supporters, where they don't even consider themselves part of a political party establishment. They consider themselves Sanders voters or Trump voters. I mean, in 2008, it was Obama who was bringing the new people to the process, and so he was going to win, and those people were going to stay inside the party as a result of him. I do think that there is something to be said for this idea that that uh, because Sanders is bringing new people to the process, if he if he, as he likely will, uh, lose, uh, then then it may be difficult to, to keep those people on board. That said, I think that once those people sort of activate and mobilize and get involved, they're involved now, and they see the, the they see the prospect of a president Donald Trump. That's going to be pretty compelling motivation. I mean, in 2008, this, the Hillary Clinton supporters who said famously said Puma, which stood for Party Unity, my ass. They ended up getting on board with Obama because they were so scared of John McCain. That's John McCain. He's basically a Democrat now. I mean, compared to like if you shift the standards, 
Uh, and so I think that Donald Trump will end up motivating a lot of these people to stay involved. And this, some of this idea that they would somehow defect entirely is a little overstated. But I think there are two important distinctions to make between 2016 and, and 2008. First, in, in 2008, the animosity was between the candidates and the campaigns. In 2016, the animosity is between factions within the party. And I That's think it's far, it's far less personal than it was between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. The other important thing to keep in mind is the position that uh, the second place runner-ups find themselves in. In 2008, Hillary Clinton was in a very different position than Bernie Sanders. She was a creature of the party who respected the party, who, along with her husband, had uh, ascended all of the ladders of the party to get to the position they were in. She had power bases that she had to speak to and be accountable to, whether you're talking about you know, Wall Street money or other, other uh, financial centers that could lean on her. She also had to think about her future, the fact that how she left the race would affect her ability to become the nominee in the future. Bernie Sanders is totally different. There's no one who can call him. There's no big donor that can call and him he's up not and say, again. Bernie, time to pull the plug. He's 74 years old. Exactly. He's not going to run again. And here's the other thing. He's not a Democrat. He did not come through the party process. And it's and it's already pretty obvious that, and, and we've reported this, that in the beginning, he wasn't even sure he was going to run as a Democrat. So he owes nothing to anyone in that party. And it's clear from the way he operated in Vermont that he didn't even get along with the Vermont Democratic Party. So there are very different circumstances in the two races. But does he want his legacy to be that he was the guy who so weakened Hillary Clinton that it created a President Donald Trump? And I think that's a consideration. Yes, but I don't think he sees himself in NATO territory yet. Uh, I think what we've seen from him in the past is he said he's very cognizant of the possibility that he could be Nader and doesn't want that to happen at all. But I think the way he looks at it right now is he sees general election polls where he's competitive. He's done pretty well. And he thinks that at the end of the day, nothing is so broken that it can't be repaired in time for the general election. Well, I mean, the question he's got to be asking himself is where in the calendar does he have his greatest point of leverage, right? If he drops out now, does he have a greater ability to influence who she picks as the vice president, to influence what policy positions she stakes out before she gets into a general where she will be naturally pulled toward the middle? I think that for Bernie Sanders, he also keep in mind how his supporters would react if he was to drop out now. Why drop out when you're winning? Um, And that... Uh, when I, I personally believe that he's going to drop out at the, as the very last moment that he can right before um, conventions. But I, I honestly think there's going to be a huge problem with the Bernie Sanders supporters coming around to support Hillary Clinton. And I don't think it's going to be as easy that I, that either Bernie Sanders thinks or any of the other Democrats think, and that's going to be a but huge what does he want? Charlie, what does he want? He wants a movement. I, think I don't buy to, that. He wants to affect the policy platform, number one. Uh, I think that's really important. I think he wants to, to play a role probably similar to Elizabeth Warren in, re, in reshaping the party and giving progressives a, uh, a much stronger voice in uh, what, there's, what, what could you want there? I mean, you're going to want the, the policy platform. You're going to want a, uh, a, a different kind of conversation on the issues that matter to him, whether it's Wall Street or fracking, uh, climate change, all of those campaign things. Campaign finance reform. Campaign finance reform, all of those things. He wants to change the, uh, the entire course of the debate in the Republican Party on that. And, if he, and as Hadass said, if you stay in past California, roll up some great numbers in California and some of the other states on June 7th, all of a sudden, uh, you know, you, he's coming in with, with some, you know, 
pretty muscular credentials. Yeah, but he's lost things. all his goodwill with the candidate who will decide those issues. And well, in some ways, he's already had that impact on those issues. The idea that he just wants it enshrined in the Democratic Party's platform at the convention. I mean, I guess there's something to be said for that. But it's like, you've already made your impact, man. You know, And now he's sort of paving the way to as you said, Nader territory. Well, now we're also starting to see how he's affecting the party as a whole. I mean, the, sh- the shade being thrown by Debbie Wasserman Schultz that Jeff Weaver said, and just like the, you're really starting to see all of this tension come out. I mean, you like the stuff that how they've been planning the debates has just been insane about how the Sanders campaign won't even talk to the DNC. I mean, the when, when the Sanders campaign accepted the Fox News debate um, this week, I found out that the DNC only found out about that because they sent them, the Sanders campaign like sent them an email saying, oh, by the way, in five seconds, we're releasing a statement that we've accepted the Fox News debate when the DNC really should be the ones that are kind of coordinating everything. And instead, the DNC is just like stepping in at the last second to be like, we sanction this. You're OK. God, if you are Bernie Sanders, how are you preparing for that debate? Are you going in there trying to take her down another notch? when you know that she's going up against somebody who has already been named the nominee? Or do you go in there trying to find a way to reach consensus? I think you just go in there, if, if you're Bernie Sanders camp, be, let Bernie be Bernie. I mean, I, I've never really understood the, the criticism of Bernie Sanders that he's been really overly harsh on Hillary Clinton. He hasn't, despite all the, the squawking. I mean, he's re- it's really been a patty cake election between those two. He hasn't hit her that hard compared to what you've seen in past Democratic primaries or compared to what you saw on the Republican side. That's and true. I don't think he's going to change direction in any way at all. What, what's great, though, about Hadassah's point in terms of how uh, the DNC was cut out of the loop there is if you're Bernie Sanders campaign, that is a smart move. Uh, you know, I thought that was pretty clever because why would you trust the DNC if you're Bernie Sanders when you think of all of the ways that you feel, uh, all of your grievances, all the ways you feel that they've had their fingers on the scale from the start, whether you're talking about the, the fundraising agreements, whether you're talking about the debate schedule, so many reasons for them to be pissed off at the DNC. The Bernie Sanders camp is not the only aggravated party this week. We've got a whole host of conservatives throughout America who are pretty pissed off about Facebook and the idea that that trending topics lane of the of the website is actually curated, right? And curated in a way that lifts up liberal topics and pushes down conservative topics. Hadass, tell us about the Fuhrer. (laughs) So this all started from a Gizmodo story, um, I believe about a week ago, where they reported um, talking to anonymous former Facebook staffers, where they said that um, within the group, they would often uh, discredit conservative news outlets um, by just not linking to them in this trending box, which is actually a pretty minor part of Facebook. But what this whole event has really done. It's, it's the tipping point to how a lot of conservatives feel uh, social media treats them in general, which is they feel that social media is in Silicon Valley and is just by, it's just a bunch of liberals. And they have reason to believe that because people like Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, will say things and do things that are of a very liberal point of view. So after this Gizmodo story, everybody reacted. The RNC gave a statement, put out a petition. Um, Facebook very quickly did PR Um, damage control and invited a list of about 12 conservative slash Republican activists or journalists or people who have worked in digital spheres out to uh, Facebook headquarters and treated them to a jam-packed day of all of their top people 
uh, gave them a tour of the campus and really tried to mend the fences a little bit, sweeten the deal a little bit, say, look, we're putting Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, and Peter Thiel in front of you for 90 minutes. Uh, Breitbart called this patting conservatives on the head. Yes, and some Do they outlets. get free snacks? When I bring people <laughs> in who are pissed off at Politico for a tour, I always, <laughs> I always take them upstairs they, to our Robert brand spanking new cafeteria and show them our free snacks they got, and urge them to help themselves. They got a great tour. They were taken to the roof. They were given an Oculus uh, virtual reality uh, test drive. They, somebody told me that Barry Bennett of the Trump campaign was a huge fan and did the hiking version. Uh, and th- everyone that I talked to from the meeting came away with it feeling um, positive. Uh, they said that they un- they felt like they understood where they were coming from and recognized that if they were to give off the impression that they didn't treat conservatives fairly, they'd lose a huge and important share of people who use Facebook. Um, and that's not what Facebook wants to do. However, they did express that they wanted more ideological diversity at Facebook. Yeah, and that's that's all well and good. But like this idea that they would lose the conservatives Really, where are they going to go? It's, I right. mean, the, the Facebook is the really the only game in town for that type of social media. But make your it own does, Facebook, Ken. Right. It, <laughs> it raises this larger point to me, and it kind of sticks in my craw a little bit that you have these conservatives who, whether it's Hollywood and the movies or the media or social media and Facebook, they raise these concerns about somehow being treated unfairly. And their suggestion here, like ultimately, is like there should be some kind of like government action to regulate Facebook, which is so anathema to conservative free market principles. Like really, if you were a true free free market purist, you would say in all these cases exactly what you just said. We don't like Facebook. We're going to make our own Facebook. We don't like Hollywood movies. We're going to make our own studio. We don't like the media. We're going to make our own media outlets. In fact, on the media side, they have started to it's do worked, that yeah. with some success. So <laughs> Great but, success. Yeah, great. Time. <laughs> Look at Independent Journal, for instance. And so, yeah, I mean, that would, that, would be, that would be the free market answer. Go make your own Facebook. Right. Instead, you have this hand-wringing and complaining and finger-pointing and suggestions of government regulation, which is not at all what conservatism is about. And honestly, the impression I got from a lot of the people who went to this is that they recognized that these reports were, while even if you know, if they were true or anything, they might have been overblown in a way, and that the reaction that they were that they were attending this meeting because they were invited, but also because it's almost to like tamp down their readers and supporters, be like, look, we're we're getting in, we're in the Facebook court headquarters, we're here, we're we're taking action. When really they kind of knew that like this doesn't really matter. Well, and my goodness, it's not like the IRS thing, right? No. It, it's a completely different ball game, right? But I mean, and what actually matters more, if you're looking at the technical aspect of it, that trending box. Half the people who probably read the stories didn't even realize the trending box existed. What's much more important is the algorithm for the newsfeed. Uh, however, what the fear for the conservatives is that these this type of sensibility would eventually make its way into newsfeed. But honestly, and this is what some of the conservatives brought up who went, they said, Facebook wants the same things we want, which is often less government intrusion. And to be honest, they're a private company, they can do whatever the heck they want. Um, But if they want to keep our audiences, they're going to have to do this big show, which they did. And a lot of them believe that now we're going to kind of, it's going to calm down a little bit. This is going to be like a two week story. And of course, there is this larger point, which is that Facebook, uh, just by virtue of its dominance, does have like a great deal of cultural currency and cultural influence and we and, and economic influence and we see that in the media where all you know media outlets are making deals to post their content straight to Facebook uh, and it's it's uh, it's a, a platform that in some ways 
makes it difficult for for media outlets. It sort of perpetuates this this trend in which media outlets have had trouble adopting to the digital. Uh, the new like digital reality. Well, let's bring this back home for a second and talk about the political implications because Facebook is incredibly relevant to the campaigns. If we've seen anything in 2016 that's different from previous cycles, it's the uh, incredible facility of the campaigns to reach very targeted voter groups, right? So the idea that conservatives would ever pull away from Facebook is frankly nonsense <laughs> because the campaigns are so adept at reaching their voters in that platform. These are people who use Facebook aggressively, just like liberals do. And all of the Republican campaigns went after their voters in that forum. And spent a lot of money on Facebook Tons ads. Tons of money. Not uh, not as much money as I would think, right? Because it's still relatively cheap, but a lot of money. Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, to your point, Kristen, the, the Tea Party was basically organized on Facebook. That's right. Right. And so, and so it is, you know, there is an open platform type of element to it. What the beef is, is about some of the more curated stuff, but that doesn't diminish the usefulness of it for organizers of all stripes. I mean, you see, you see, like. It's by far the most important platform for this group of people, right? The, we talk about Twitter here and are you on Twitter aggressively? It really only matters in the media community, right? Or in the politics and po- politicians, the Washington community, right? People in the real world don't use Twitter the no, way that we do, they all. use Facebook. And that explains why uh, the right, and this is where, where I'm on the other side of the can. I mean, they, I think conservatives have every right to be really angry about this for the very reasons that Christian just laid out. I mean, I think, you know, aside from the, the incredible power of that platform, uh, Facebook, I, you know, as I see it, has always promoted itself as, some, as a platform devoted to transparency and open discussion. And uh, imagine if you're a conservative and one day you wake up that that's not really the case, that, you know, uh, and that this is a distorted market, that, that you did not know in any way or were led to believe otherwise that uh, they were cooking, they, you know, they were putting their finger on the scales. So what is the solution to that, though? Is it government regulation, which, again, in my contention, it completely flies in the face of, of conservatism? Or is it free market competition where you don't like it, take your business elsewhere and go find your own social or create your own social media platform? I don't think you'd find it, a ton of Republicans or conservatives calling for government regulation here. There were a couple voices out there saying that, but I think really they just wanted to... Well, they're doing congressional questionings. Like yeah, but that's not, that's not the same as... Congressional hearings is just doing the perp walk. Right. You know, I mean, congressional hearings is just your opportunity to beat the crap out of the people that you're angry with. That's a very uh, different thing than actually calling for regulation. But does it it not give the impression of the government getting involved in a private enterprise's work? No, there are congressional hearings about lots of different things, you know, without actually calling for increased government regulation. I mean, I would I would agree with Hadass a little bit. It's the threat of government regulation that makes the hearings that attracts attention to the hearings and makes them what they are. I mean, it's like you know the the steroid hearings in Major League Baseball. That's a regulated monopoly, and in fact, the you know uh, the the suggest the bringing the bringing the Roger Clemens before Congress to ask him about steroid use. The the logical conclusion of that is like is government regulation. Now it didn't happen. But it's not to say it couldn't, and I think that's why uh, you know that's why these hearings like carry such weight uh, with, with Facebook. 
who knows? I mean, maybe maybe it is a monopoly and maybe it, it should be regulated as such. But I would just contend that that is not really that that, that kind of flies in the face of a conservative view of how uh, how the free market should function. And I would say conservatives opposed to regulation should be careful here because there's a lot of talk about the Internet in general being considered a public utility, right, which opens it up to government regulation. And when you start talking about a public utility like the Internet and combine that with monopolistic practices like Facebook might be accused of, you're opening up a can of worms that you're really going to regret if you are a conservative opposed to regulation. And in fact, uh, the FEC, which has exempted, very early on, exempted most Internet communication from federal election laws, uh, the, the, the former chairman of the FEC, Ann Ravel, uh, suggested reopening the Internet, doing a rulemaking on some Internet communication. And the wrath of hate that she received from conservatives, our former colleague Dave Leventhal is now at the Center for Public Integrity, did a story, I think he used FOIA, to get some, to essentially gain access to her inbox, all the comments that were being sent to her, just some vicious stuff about shutting down free speech. So you see there sort of the opposite pull from conservatives against uh, this type of regulation. Charlie, you I think would, we're wrong. I do. I would just be careful about equating uh, hearings with a call for increased regulation. I mean, congressional hearings are Washington's preferred form of political theater. They're for fact-finding. They're for uh, peacocking by little-known members of Congress. I mean, when you start hearing conservatives actually call for maybe the Justice Department should take a look at this, maybe there are any antitrust regula- uh, implications, things like that, then the debate begins to change, I think. All right, let's bring Scott Bland into this conversation. Scott, welcome again, our editor from Campaign Pro. Thanks for having me. So this week we saw a number of very interesting stories, frankly, revolving around the campaign's efforts to attract women uh, to their cause. Uh, Early this week, we had the New York Times with an incredible story, frankly, about how Donald Trump treats women in his orbit. Now, the Trump campaign and some of the women who were spoken with um, by the New York Times reporters have have dismissed this reporting as not fully accurate, um, and in some cases, you know, quite inaccurate. But the story was an important one. In this story, the New York Times reporters talked to 50 women um, who recounted ways that they were treated by Donald Trump, demeaning ways that they were treated by Donald Trump. What can you tell us, Scott, in looking at all of the stories we've seen this week, starting with the New York Times, leading all the way up to Donald Trump making an accusation that Bill Clinton is a rapist? What does this tell us about what the campaigns are doing to attract uh, women voters to their own campaign and drive women away from the opponent? Uh, It tells us that it's the central question of the campaign. And you could see that in the Priorities USA ads released uh, earlier this week, which were targeted, their first TV ads for the Clinton Super PAC of 2016, targeted directly at at women using uh, past quotes from Donald Trump, Donald, uh, on, on, on women, on abortion. And the, the interesting thing is, if you, if you look at the recent polls, uh, we, you know, pulled five or six recent polls from uh, the, the online aggregators, and whether uh, Trump is, is leading in one recent Fox poll or, or Clinton is leading in the other ones, the gender gap is enormous. There's a 22-point average gender gap in, in these polls. And what that means, it's the difference between how well Trump, the Republican, is doing among men, how much he's leading with men, and how much Clinton is leading among women. 22-point gap. 
For context, in 2014, exit polls showed the largest gender gap in the last 20 years, and that was 20 points. So already the polls are showing an even bigger gap in how men view Trump and how women view Clinton than we saw in the, the largest such gap in an election in the last 20 years. Charlie, what does this tell you about what the campaign is doing? How are they viewing this inside? Well, I think they, they are beginning to recognize that this is the Mars versus Venus uh, election, but I think the, the, the real concern is what this opens the door to. Uh, once you start that discussion, uh, in the past, Republicans have been on the defensive on gender gap issue. I mean, it's so familiar. We've been seeing it in elections for, tw for you know, decades. But what's, what's different now is that Trump has uh, signaled that he's opened the door to throwing out everything from uh, Bill Clinton's closet, whether it's uh, Juanita Broderick, uh, whether it's charges going back decades. And all of a sudden, that's an X factor in the election that I don't think the Clinton campaign or an any campaign really would know how to deal with something like that once you get that National Enquirer element it seems to me that what Donald Trump is trying to do is maybe not pull women to him, but make sure women don't vote for Hillary Clinton, right? I mean, it seems to be that he's going to spend the general election going after Bill Clinton and calling Hillary Clinton, and we're already seeing it, an enabler in the belief that other women will look at that and see some hint of truth. It's like the one thing that Donald Trump is really, really good at is finding that little thing. It's like a bully's ability to find that little point of weakness and exploit it. And he's found that with Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. No, Ken? Yeah, that's exactly right, Kristen. And it ties in with what Charlie was saying, that we're seeing an effort to sort of stretch the bounds of what is acceptable political discourse, bringing in Charlie alludes to the National Enquirer, but it's not just the National Enquirer. It's Roger Stone, the longtime Donald Trump confidant who has written a book, The Clinton's War on Women, that gets into some of this just sensational, unproven stuff. Trump has showed a willingness to go there. He's denied that he is pulling directly from that book, but at other times he has referred to the book, and certainly Roger Stone has planted the idea that he is feeding Donald Trump this stuff. Uh, let's not forget, Roger Stone is a guy who also wrote a book about the man who killed Kennedy. Yes, that would be LBJ. LBJ, in Roger Stone telling, was responsible for uh, nine murders, including the greatest crime of the 20th century, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. So you can kind of see where this might be headed if Roger Stone is, in fact, the guy who is advising either directly or indirectly Donald Trump on how to take on the Clintons. But you know what? The fact is this stuff resonates. It resonates with people in a real and meaningful way, and it resonates with women. When you accuse Hillary Clinton of enabling the bad behavior of her husband, and not just the bad behavior, the embarrassing stuff, but stuff that might have actually damaged other women, that is stuff that speaks to female voters in America. Am I wrong about this? I think you're right, and I think that uh, it, it's it's sort of something that has dogged her from the beginning. I think there there is also an argument to be made, however, that it it uh, some of the behavior of her husband has helped her to some extent. That women feel sorry for her, but there's a fine line between seeing her as sort of a blameless victim in this and someone who is, as Donald Trump has suggested, an enabler. I'd argue that it also burnishes uh, Trump's brand because. Uh, think about it. He is speaking truth, uh, truth to two of the most powerful people in the world. Who says that kind of stuff to the Clintons? Somebody like Donald Trump, who is not afraid of anyone. It advances the the notion that he will say anything. That he's tough. Uh, that he's authentic. 
and that he's not afraid of anyone. And I think that there are a lot of people on the right that feel that Bill Clinton got a pass for some of his behavior. And now that sort of society's mores have changed over the last couple decades, introducing this new X element in terms of how some of the uh, how some of his transgressions were handled before, how the Clinton operation treated some of those women. I think we could have a very different debate now than we did before. And it can be very damaging. Absolutely, Charlie. And, and, and the debate is both the, the, in the figurative sense as to what is happening in the media. And of course, we see a media today that is so much more fractured and democratized, I guess would be the, the, the sort of positive way to put it, than it was in the 1990s when there was a conservative media that was going after some of these Clinton charges that was waging the Clinton wars, but was really siloed and isolated from the rest of the media. Now, that's not the case. It's all very integrated in a big cacophonous mess. So there's that media debate and air quotes. And then there are actual debates where Trump will be on stage with Hillary Clinton being able to make some of these charges directly. I think that's going to be explosive. It's going to be ugly. Scott, talk to us a little bit about how these allegations around Bill Clinton's behavior, however many years ago it was, how that affects uh, voters. What are you seeing in the polling on that? Yeah, basically, we're not seeing anything about it yet, right? Clinton still does very well with women, as you would expect a a Democratic uh, presidential nominee to do, as you would expect a female Democratic presidential nominee to do. If you look at the last few polls, Fox, which had Clinton uh, trailing in the first major national poll in in a very long time, trailing Trump, had Clinton uh, beating Trump by 14 points among women. Now, Trump led because he had an even bigger... Uh, lead among men, 22 points. And so, you know, we'll have to take some time and see if, if that's replicated in more polls and kind of what, what happens as uh, the Democratic primary closes out and, and what happens in the next few weeks. But even, even in the, the one poll that's shown Donald Trump winning, Clinton is just crushing it with women. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you, Scott Bland. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hadass Gold. Thank you. Thank you, Ken Vogel. Fun time as always. And Charlie Matassian. Thanks, Kristen. That's it for us. Thank you. If you like what you heard, go and search us on iTunes and Stitcher. Look for 2016 Nerdcast. Rate us and subscribe. Subscribe.